I'm Mark Peterson, and this is the FEMA Podcast. In 2017, hurricanes, tornadoes, flooding, and landslides due to heavy rains and wildfires affected millions of Americans. Natural hazards like these are also very expensive. Since 1980, 246 weather-related disasters in the United States each caused at least a billion dollars in damage. Damage from these billion-dollar disasters together totaled over $1.6 trillion. FEMA is focused on strengthening the nation's ability to withstand these disasters by limiting their loss through mitigation investment. Recently, the Mitigation Framework Leadership Group, the MITFLAG, released the National Mitigation Investment Strategy, which is intended to be a single national strategy for advancing mitigation investment to reduce risks posed by natural hazards and ultimately increase the nation's resilience to those hazards. On today's episode, we sat down with the co-chairs of the group to talk about this strategy and how it's transformative for the way that we seek to prevent future loss from disasters. Okay, so we have the opportunity to sit down with the co-leads for the National Mitigation Investment Strategy. Uh, First, Angie Gladwell from FEMA's Federal Insurance and Mitigation Administration. Angie, thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Um, and Steve Kaufman from DHS's Cyber Security and Infrastructure Security Administration. That's correct. Thanks so much. Um, okay, so the National Mitigation Investment Strategy, it, it seems to me that this is an important step towards unifying all of the efforts that are already underway throughout the nation to prevent future losses from disasters. Um, is this... The that, consolidation of that? that That's absolutely correct. I mean, if we go back to FEMA's strategic plan, goal 1.1 to reduce risk, um, this is really the strategy on how we do that. This is an opportunity for us to have a framework across both the public sector and the private sector um, to really think about how do we align and coordinate those investments to reduce risk, to lessen disaster suffering, um, and how do we do that more effectively than what we're doing today? And it's more than just federal dollars that are that are talked about, right? Absolutely. So we're looking at all the investments that are being made or could be made towards mitigation and resilience. So we're talking about um, what investments are individuals making in their their homes. What are communities doing? Most of the infrastructure dollars, as an example, in this nation are at the local level. How are those being invested, as well as um, at state, tribal, um, as well as the federal government levels? So we're releasing it now, but... Um I have to think that over the last couple of years, the severity of the storms that we've seen, has that had an impact on why we're, why we've developed it now? Yes. Um, as we see the increasing severity and impact of disasters, and specifically those events that uh, top a billion dollars, that's continuing to increase. So, People are bearing that uh, that burden. The taxpayers are. Um, but again, I'm also going to go back to the disaster suffering. Every event that we're having goes back to individuals that are not in their homes, um, livelihoods being disrupted, or businesses that cannot recover. And this is something that, as a nation, we really need to, to grapple with um, and figure out some better ways to um, address this gap or this need. 
Can we talk a little bit about how the what the process was for developing the strategy? Sure. So we started out uh, looking at just the federal picture and quickly came to the conclusion that, as, as Angie's already uh, discussed, that we really had to look not only at the federal investment, but also state and local governments, tribal and territorial governments, the private sector, even the insurance industry where risk is actually transferred. Um, and so this became a national mitigation investment strategy. We started out um, looking at six outcomes with a series of recommendations. Uh, Those recommendations, in some cases, tended toward implementation. And so as we went through our uh, public uh, comment period and also reached out to uh, stakeholders that represented large groups, um, some of the feedback we got was to make this a more high-level document, more uh, a strategy, and we've done that. And we've tried to uh, really simplify it uh, and and hold the in, um, implementation piece for the implementation team that is uh, just starting up. What was the role of the mitigation framework leadership group in the development? So this task of developing the strategy was given to the mitigation leadership group. And that group is really the interagency coordinating body for federal mitigation policy. Uh, so it's mostly a federal body, but we also have uh, members from state, local, tribal tribes and territories on there as well. Um, So that group really took on the responsibility of developing the strategy and overseeing the development and now the implementation. Um, I I know that there are some defined goals in the strategy. Um, Can we we talk through those? Sure. Um, So so the first goal is to show how mitigation investments uh, reduce risk. So how do you see that um, being implemented? My simple language for goal one is about making mitigation relevant to people. Hmm. Um, How is it that one of the things that we learned when we were undertaking this and as we were doing the, the public comment and some of the engagement with communities is that mitigation overall is complex and it's poorly understood. And people think about terms like resilience and mitigation and sustainability, and they really don't know what it is that we're talking about or what it is we want them to do. So goal one, in my mind, is about taking um, mitigation and thinking about what it is that people care about or the different audiences that we're talking to, what they care about, and being able to make it actionable for them. In addition to that, it's also about being able to um, equip people across all the various disciplines that are involved in mitigation. So mitigation and resiliency now requires people to be, oh, we've got planners and architects and engineers and actuaries and um, uh, sociologists and all these other um, fields that have to be involved in coming up with the solutions um, and ways to invest in, in mitigation. But they are are often not equipped to do that. How do engineers actually design um, infrastructure for the, the what the future hazards 
uh, may present. Um, how do planners think about this as they're working on comprehensive plans, those kinds of things. And so it's about how do we also professionalize um, mitigation across those fields? And then also how do we look at what is success? How, if someone retrofitted their building, do they know that that is going to be safe for them to enter after an earthquake? Uh, those kinds of things. So how do we build measures of success that can also be commonly understood so that people know that once mitigation has occurred, that it's something that um, is meaningful to them? I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about what, something you said. It's sort of the theme of actionability of mitigation. Um, because mitigation, I wonder if uh, the public has a sense of mitigation being sort of something that a community undertakes versus something that is personal. Um, you know, and I think homeowners can take actions that mitigate their risk to a disaster, like elevating their utilities or something like that, or um, retrofitting their home for earthquakes. So it's not just for the community's responsibility to undertake mitigation actions. It's everybody's responsibility. I mean, from the from the homeowner, it's the decision of where you buy your home or rent your home in the first place to then what you do to protect your home over the, the life of it, how whether or not you buy insurance um, as well to protect yourself financially if something would happen to businesses. Are they thinking about their workers um, and how their workers might be able to get back to work after an event or whether their facilities are, are resilient um, as well as communities? So it's really about all of the actions that everyone can take um, and how we do that in a more coordinated way. Um, do you see a role for highlighting some of the successes that we've already had for mitigation? For example, in the Midwest right now, you know, we're seeing reoccurring flooding. But we're also seeing it in areas where we've had tremendous um, acquisition activity, acquisition and demolition of homes um, that were conducted um, as a result of mitigation grant dollars. That's a huge success story. And the strategy actually has some of those highlights uh, sprinkled throughout the document. So when people read through it, they'll get to see an, you know, some of those examples uh, that you gave. They'll also see examples where mitigation also had some other co-benefits. So there's an example very early on in the document to demonstrate uh, co-benefits. So we've tried to you know give some real-world examples, but you know also uh, really focus on the steps that we want to take. And I think that's a real opportunity with the implementation of the investment strategy because when we actually talk to communities about what they struggle with when they're dealing with these issues, it's understanding who's like me, who's dealing with some of these same uh, struggles and pain points and how have they done that and how can we get the right partners engaged to help continue to facilitate that sharing of information in a way that's uh, expeditious um, and efficient. And, and maybe that gets to the, the next goal, which is coordinate mitigation investments uh, to reduce risk. So talk to me about that goal. I find that this goal is really the heart of why we developed the investment strategy in the first place. This is about the, the idea that there is a lot of money and funding out there that can be utilized. Um, but again, when you talk to people that are, they know what they need to do to be able to reduce risk, but they really struggle with um, being able to 
find the right funding sources, the complexity of applying for those funding sources or matching that funding together with others. Um, and how can they do that? How can we ease the access to that funding? How do we provide the risk data and information that we have as well to inform those investments um, in a way that's actually teed up to those decisions that they're trying to make? And how do we more easily share that information across organizations or across governments, whether that's putting it in open source format or other things so that people have at their fingertips the information they need to be able to make those decisions, and then they're able to easily access the funding that they need to be able to carry out their projects. Again, whether that's in their own local budgets or um, other sources. I think, you know, that it, this is also an opportunity to show how mitigation can be applied to projects that are being funded through sources that are not specifically for risk reduction. And so uh, trying to get mitigation, and it kind of gets to the third item, which we'll talk about in a moment, but really making mitigation a part of what communities do in their everyday um, operations in their everyday planning, uh, but showing how mitigation can be applied in other areas to meet other goals. Yeah, well, let's get to that. So the the, the third goal is uh, to make mitigation investment um, standard practice. My short term for this goal is this is where we reach a tipping point. This is where we reach a tipping point where it's not um, a push towards mitigation, um, but it's ingrained in the everyday thinking of all of the, the decisions that are uh, being made at various levels. So to me, what this means for a typical community, for example, in the, the Midwest, is that um, planners, as they're working their comprehensive planning or thinking about what their risks are, not only now, but what they're going to be in the future. And they're thinking about um, their land use and their development decisions. They're thinking about um, what, where, uh, where the built environment should go. They're thinking about what codes they should be building to. They're designing everything that's being built um, uh, to the standards that are appropriate for that, that risk. Um, and they're making those decisions on a, on a daily basis and really integrating that in, in, in a regular way. Do you have the sense that um, mitigation as it stands now or historically has been something that uh, has been looked at when grant dollars are available? Yes, I, I hear that all the time. Uh, in fact, I was at a meeting last week where someone basically stood up and said, you know, it's really the FEMA mitigation dollars that really matter here. And I, and I think right now that that is the perception. It's seen as we do our normal building and development and planning and all of those things, and then we bring in additional dollars to address the, the risks or we do that after the fact. And what we want to do through the investment strategy is kind of flip that on its head. Planning really is the foundation of all of this um, because right now a lot of communities, especially urban communities, their development is outpacing any of these types of decisions. And so not only do we have existing developments that are in high-risk places that are uh, getting increased flooding, like urban flooding, um, because of uh, stormwater backups and aging infrastructure and um, increasing um, flood risks, but 
they're also adding a lot of new development um, that's not even addressing or considering these types of issues. And so our goal is to flip this on its head and really get ahead of that so that those decisions can be made and every dollar that's being put towards a community is considering these risks. To your point about um, federal dollars being um, sort of maybe the impetus for mitigation actions out there, um, doesn't the BRIC program help change that? Because now we're making more dollars available more often, I suppose? I think it, it certainly does. It's a great opportunity to be able to have the federal government as an example for pre-disaster, this type of pre-disaster investment. The issue is how are we going to leverage that? And what's the opportunity there? I was in Utah a couple of weeks ago and saw a library that had been retrofitted at the University of Utah with a very small amount of federal dollars that then leveraged uh, philanthropy to be able to fund most of the investment but then use the FEMA dollars to be able to really highlight that federal commitment and need to be able to make that investment. So how do we best use these federal dollars that we're getting and use them and leverage them in a way that we're really maximizing our impact? Are there, um, are there risks that, and maybe this is something that you can speak to from the CISA point of view, um, are there risks that aren't natural hazards that we're looking to mitigate against uh, through the mitigation investment strategy? This has come up in, in some of the uh, stakeholder engagement and even through our review process. So the, the mid-flag obviously has a bias towards natural hazards. That's you know where uh, most of the expertise lies. And, and certainly natural hazards were foremost in our minds as we were developing the strategy. That said, the way the strategy is written, it could consider other hazards or other threats to uh, infrastructure and buildings. Uh, we don't explicitly call that out, but that's certainly a possibility. So what is the, now that we have the strategy uh, written, what is the future for implement, implementing the strategy? That's a great question. Um, and one that we're really working on right now. So as we transition into implementation, as I mentioned, the mitigation leadership group is really going to oversee that implementation. And what we're looking to do is to be able to identify annual priorities for that implementation. Um, what are the things that we really want to focus on that we want to highlight across the whole community um, so that everyone can be engaged towards helping us um, address that, that priority for the year. So not only is this going to be then the MIT flag doing work, but the, the goal is we want to get everybody engaged to, to help. Well, I think a, a large part of what the uh, the implementation team will be doing is really trying to educate um, the, the whole of community on the benefits of mitigation, um, taking advantage of recent uh, you know documents like the uh, the NIBS report on uh, mitigation saves and and the the fact that mitigation actually has a higher payoff than the original document found uh, back in the early 2000s. Um, and then, as Angie said, you know, at the, at the beginning, really trying to make uh, mitigation something that people understand, they understand its value to them, how it's going to protect their lives and livelihood and the things they care about, and also that it doesn't necessarily have to be a huge expense. It can be done as part of other things and but it can have a very big payoff for them. So 
Um, that's going to be, I think, a large part of the implementation team's uh, focus over the next uh, year or two. So just kind of really sum, summarize our, our focus in implementation. One, as Steve mentioned, is really the, the education. So rallying everyone around what this is, how they can contribute, how to help. The second is really bringing focus, establishing a focus that we can really drive towards action on. And then the third is looking how we can measure success. How do we know um, a year or two years into the implementation that we've actually made a difference and that things are, are changing in the way that we're invest investing in mitigation? So we're looking at what data can we utilize to be able to understand that and also capture that not only at the federal level, which is a challenge, but how do we look at that at the state and local and other levels as well to be able to expand our understanding of how uh, people and communities and organizations are investing in mitigation. You two have spent uh, a significant amount of time working through these problems and you know obviously your work has resulted in this strategy. What do you envision the world being like in say 10 to 20 years? My vision is that we're able to look and, and identify big problems, big areas of risk, and be able to work together to solve them in a way that is buying down risk in a real way. That, that's my goal. I, I feel like right now there's a lot of goodness happening um, in terms of mitigation at various levels, um, but often we're, again, we're working in, in silos or we're not working in really coordination with one another to buy down risk. And so when I then look and go to response and recovery and they say, well, the response needs that I have for this scenario are now drastically reduced. People are going to be back in their housing sooner. Businesses are able to respond or be able to recover more quickly. Um, and as a community, it's able to be back and have people in schools and all of those normal activities much sooner because we are now investing in different ways. That to me is success. And, and from an infrastructure maybe point of view, uh, what are your hopes? Well, actually, I, th I think that's well said. Um, what we actually focus on now is really on the response and recovery side rather than really thinking about what we can do pre-event to reduce the impacts. Um, so certainly my work is, is really focused on pre-event. Uh, Angie mentioned planning. A lot of what I do in resilience is really focused on can we do a better job of planning and actually using the plans as the implementing vehicles to affect change, positive change. And so I guess, you know, my um, hope for the next 10, 15, 20 years is to really see that shift to let's kind of take control of the outcomes by uh, really focusing on the importance of mitigation up front and incorporating that into planning and the uh, normal operations so that we are actually changing the trajectory of this continuing increase in the cost of disaster. And something that we we haven't talked about yet, but I just want to raise, we talked a little bit about insurance, but I think there's a lot of other financial tools besides just um, grants or money invested that, that's important here. I mean, when we think about um, lenders and we think about bond ratings and we think about all those other things that 
drive us to make decisions in certain ways, I think that's also an important part of what we're, we're talking about here. Um, there's a whole package of things. Tax credits are incentives and all of those that can be used again together to be able to help us to achieve these goals. Uh, are building codes an aspect of this? Absolutely. There, in fact, uh, in goal three, that is one uh, of our recommendations about improving the adoption and the enforcement of building codes. Um, and, and there's actually one project I'd like to highlight a little bit that shows kind of the how some of these different goals or recommendations can uh, can work together. Um, it's uh, a campaign called Be Code Confident that has been done, uh, FEMA uh, worked with the Federal Alliance of uh, Safe Homes and they've really led this initiative to really understand how people feel about building codes, what are they thinking, what's important to them about building codes. And one of the things that they learned in this effort was, one, people didn't really think about building codes, uh, which is an important thing to know, but they also learned that people expected that builders were building to the latest codes. They expected that local officials were addressing um, these types of issues and preparing for disasters. And they had very strong reactions when they learned that there's a possibility that they had no code at all. And so this gets to goal one about making mitigation relevant. As we were able to the, learn this from the focus groups, then the Federal Alliance for Sa Safe Homes was able to really target a to the consumers a, a product and a website that was able to allow people to enter their address and their zip code and just pull up information to say, do I have the latest code? Um, and some resources that if I don't, this is what I might want to, to do. And so this is kind of how we want to be able to use some of these goals and recommendations together to really understand what matters to people and how can we then tailor some of our approaches to, to meet those needs. In some ways, building codes are almost foundational to all of the things we're talking about here. Um, we don't replace buildings and infrastructure very quickly but it's very important to have those up-to-date codes in place so that as we do replace the infrastructure and the building stock, we're building resilience in as we go. And I, I do want to say that with all the focus that we've had and what we've been speaking to, the, uh, to about the built environment, that, that doesn't eliminate the natural environment from this conversation. We make investments in restoring wetlands or in oyster reefs or all of those other things as well, or looking at green infrastructure. And so I just want to be kind of clear as we're talking about the range of the investments that uh, we have a pretty broad scope of what we're um, envisioning here can be included. We talked about how mitigation is everybody's responsibility, but, you know, to the practitioner out there who's thinking about mitigation investments for their community, what's, what's the charge that this strategy is, um, is aiming for for them? This is a real opportunity for everyone to be able to make a tangible difference in reducing risk. It's an opportunity to look at what we're trying to achieve, how we achieve it, how we can bring new partners and new players to the table to address the needs of people and communities and make 
tangible, substantive changes that will reduce risk and reduce disaster suffering. We welcome your comments and suggestions on this and future episodes. Help us to improve the podcast by rating us and leaving a comment. If you have ideas for future topics, send us an email at FEMA-podcast at FEMA.dhs.gov. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, visit FEMA.gov slash podcast. Podcast.